My name is James Newcomb, and I love stories. Stories make you happy, they make you sad, they make you angry, they make you glad. But most importantly, they make you think. That's what this show is all about. It's called Newcombio, and it begins now. Hey everybody, thanks for pressing play on my little show. This is a book that was assigned to me when I was in Bible college in, I think, the late late 90s, maybe early 2000s. And it's called The Go-Getter by Peter Kine. It was uh, written in the 1920s, I believe. But it's, it's one of those books where it doesn't matter when it was written, it's the principles in the book that are that are applicable. So there's a bit of archaic language that uh, may not apply to um, to our modern day, but those are very, very secondary, tertiary issues. Uh, the big things, the big takeaways from this book is just having an attitude of, I'm going to get this done no matter what. And although the circumstances of the story are a little bit fantastic, they're exaggerated for dramatic effect as any good book or movie or what what have you is it's 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 dramatized uh the circumstances are exaggerated but it's the uh it's the principles of just having that attitude of the job isn't done until it's done and i will not take any i will not accept any other outcome than what i have set out to do and it's uh Many t- I've been many many a time have I found myself thinking about uh, Bill Peck and getting that crazy blue vase um, in different different times in my life, and I want to share it with you. So thanks for listening. And again, I have a free ebook. It's called Success and Failure. This this book is even older than the Go Getter. It was written in the late 1800s, but again, it's the principles of success and failure. And I read it typed it out so that I could get it ready for you guys and uh, it made me think twice about how I would define success and failure. Sometimes failure is uh, the best possible outcome. So again, thanks for pressing play and here we go. It's The Go-Getter by Peter Kine. The Go-Getter, a story that tells you how to be one by Peter B. Kine. Dedication. This little book is dedicated to the memory of my dead chief, Brigadier General Leroy S. Lyon, sometime commander of the 65th Field Artillery Brigade, 40th Division, United States Army. He practiced and preached a religion of loyalty to the country and the appointed task, whatever it might be. Chapter 1 Mr. Alden P. Ricks, known in Pacific Coast wholesale lumber and shipping circles as Cappy Ricks, had more troubles than a hen with ducklings. He remarked as much to Mr. Skinner, president and general manager of the Ricks Logging and Lumbering Company, the corporate entity which represented Cappy's vast lumber interests. And he fairly barked the information at Captain Matt Peasley, his son-in-law and also president and manager of the Blue Star Navigation Company, another corporate entity which represented the Ricks' interest in the American Mercantile Marine. Mr. Skinner received this information in silence. He was not related to Cappy Ricks. But Matt Peasley sat down, crossed his legs, and matched glares with his mercurial father-in-law. "'You have troubles,' he jeered, with emphasis on the pronoun. 
Have you got a misery in your back, or is Herbert Hoover the wrong man for Secretary of Commerce? Stow your sarcasm, young feller, Cappy shrilled. You know dad blamed well it isn't a question of health or politics. It's the fact that in my old age I find myself totally surrounded by the choicest aggregation of mental duds since Ajax defied the lightning. Meaning whom? said Matt Peasley. You and Skinner. Why? What have we done? You argued me into taking on the management of 25 of those infernal shipping board freighters, and no sooner do we have them allocated to us than a near panic hits the country. Freight rates go to glory, marine engineers go on strike, and every infernal young whelp we send out to take charge of one of our offices in the Orient promptly gets the swelled head and thinks he's divinely ordained to drink up all the synthetic scotch whiskey manufactured in Japan for the benefit of thirsty Americans. In my old age, you two have forced us into the position of having to fire folks by cable. And why? Because we're breaking into a game that can't be played on the home grounds. A lot of our business is so far away we can't control it. Matt Peasley leveled an accusing finger at Cappy Ricks. We never argued into taking over the management of those shipping board boats. We argued me into it. I'm the goat. You have nothing to do with it. You retired ten years ago. All the troubles in the marine end of this shop belong on my capable shoulders, old settler. Theoretically, yes. Actually, no. I hope you don't expect me to abandon mental as well as physical effort. Great wampus cats! Am I to be denied a sentimental interest in matters where I have a controlling financial interest? I admit you two boys are running my affairs, and ordinarily you run them rather well, but... <coughs> <coughs> What's the matter with you, Matt? And you, Skinner? If Matt makes a mistake, it's your job to remind him of it before the results manifest themselves, is it not? And vice versa. Have you two boobs lost your ability to judge men, or did you ever have such ability? You're referring to Henderson of the Shanghai office, I dare say, Mr. Skinner cut in. I am, Skinner, and I'm here to remind you that if we'd stuck to our own game, which is coastwise shipping, and had left the Trans-Pacific field with its general cargoes to others, we wouldn't have any Shanghai office at this moment, and we would not be pestered by the Hendersons of this world. He's the best lumber salesman we've ever had, Mr. Skinner defended. I had every hope that he would send us orders for many a cargo of Asiatic delivery. And he had gone through every job in this office, from office boy to sales manager in the lumber department, and from freight clerk to passenger agent in the navigation company, said Matt Peasley. I admit all of that, said Cappy, but did you consult me when you decided to send him out to China on his own? Of course not, Matt replied. I'm boss of the Blue Star Navigation Company, am I not? The man was in charge of the Shanghai office before you ever opened your mouth to discharge your cargo of free advice. I told you then that Henderson wouldn't make good, didn't I? You did. And now I have an opportunity to tell you the little tale you didn't give me an opportunity to tell you before you sent him out. Henderson was a good man, a crackerjack man, when he had a better man over him. But I've been 20 years reducing a tendency on the part of that fellow's head to bust his hatband. And now he's gone south with 130,000 tales of our Shanghai bank account. Permit me to remind you, Mr. Ricks, Mr. Skinner cut in coldly, that he was bonded to the extent of a quarter of a million dollars. Not a peep out of you, Skinner. Not a peep. Permit me to remind you that I'm the little genius who placed that insurance unknown to you and Matt, 
and I recall now that I was reminded by you, Matthew, my son, that I had retired ten years ago, and please would I quit interfering in the internal administration of your office. Well, I must admit your farsightedness in that instance will keep the Shanghai office out of the red ink this year, Matt Peasley replied. However, we face this situation, Cappy. Henderson has drunk and gambled and signed chits in excess of his salary. He hasn't attended to business, and he's capped off his inefficiency by absconding with our bank account. We couldn't foresee that. When we send a man out to the Orient to be our manager there, we have to trust him all the way or not at all. So there's no use weeping over spilled milk, Cappy. Our job is to select a successor to Henderson and send him out to Shanghai on the next boat. Oh, very well, Matt, Cappy replied magnanimously. I'll not rub it into you. I suppose I'm far from generous bawling you out like this. Perhaps when you're my age and you have a lot of mental and moral cripples nip and draw blood as often as they've drawn it on me, you'll be a better judge than I of men worthy of the weight of responsibility. Skinner, have you got a candidate for the job? I regret to say, sir, I have not. All of the men in my department are quite young, too young for the responsibility. What do you mean, young? Cappy blazed. Well... The only man I would consider for the job is Andrews, and he's too young. About 30, I should say. About 30, huh? Strikes me you were about 28 when I threw 10000 a year at you in actual cash and a couple of million dollars worth of responsibility. Yes, sir, but then Andrews has never been tested. Skinner, Cappy said in his most awful voice. It's a constant source of amazement to me why I refrain from firing you. You say that Andrews has never been tested. Why hasn't he been tested? Why are we maintaining untested material in this shop anyhow? Huh? Answer me that. Not a peep out of you, sir. If you had done your Christian duty, you would have taken a year's vacation when lumber was selling itself in 1919 and 20, and you would have left Andrews sitting in at your desk to see the sort of stuff he's made of. It's a mighty lucky thing I didn't go away for a year. Skinner protested respectfully, because the market broke, like that. And if you don't think we have to hustle to sell sufficient lumber to keep our own ships busy freighting it... Skinner, how dare you contradict me? How old was Matt Peasley when I turned over the Blue Star Navigation Company to him, lock, stock, and barrel? Why, he wasn't 26 years old. Skinner, you're a dodo. The killjoys like you who have straddled the neck of industry and throttled it with absurd theories that a man's back must be bent like an oxbow and his locks snowy white before he can be entrusted with responsibility and a living wage have caused all of our wars and strikes. This is a young man's world, Skinner, and don't you ever forget it. The go-getters of this world are under 30 years of age. Matt, he concluded, turning to his son-in-law, what do you think of Andrews for that Shanghai job? I think he'll do. Why do you think he'll do? Because he ought to do. He's been with us long enough to have acquired sufficient experience to enable him. Has he acquired the courage to tackle the job, Matt? Cappy interrupted. That's more important than this doggone experience you and Skinner prate so much about. I know nothing of his courage, Matt said. I assume that he has forced an initiative. I know he has a pleasing personality. Well, before we send him out, we ought to know whether or not he has force and initiative. Then, said Matt Peasley, rising, I wash my hands of the job of selecting Henderson's successor. You've butted in, so I suggest you name the lucky man. 
Yes, indeed, Skinner agreed. I'm sure it's quite beyond my poor abilities to uncover Andrew's force and initiative on such notice. He does possess sufficient force and initiative for his present job, but... But will he possess force and initiative when he has to make a quick decision 6,000 miles from expert advice and stand or fall by that decision, said Cappy. That's what we want to know, Skinner. Well, I suggest, sir, Mr. Skinner replied with chill politeness, that you conduct the examination. I accept the nomination, Skinner, by the holy pink-toed prophet. The next man we send out to that Shanghai office is going to be a go-getter. We've had three managers go rotten on us, and that's three too many. And without further ado, Cappy swung his aged legs up onto his desk and slid down in his swivel chair until he rested on his spine. His head sank on his breast, and he closed his eyes. He's framing the examination for Andrews, Matt Peasley whispered as he and Skinner made their exits. Chapter 2 the President Emeritus of the Rick's interests was not destined to uninterrupted cogitation, however. Within ten minutes, his private exchange operator called him to the telephone. What is it? Cappy yelled into the transmitter. There's a young man in the general office. His name is Mr. William E. Peck, and he desires to see you personally. Cappy sighed. Very well. Have him shown in. Almost immediately, the office boy ushered Mr. Peck into Cappy's presence. The moment he was fairly inside the door, the visitor halted, came easily and naturally to attention, and bowed respectfully, while the cool glance of his keen blue eyes held steadily the autocrat of the Blue Star Navigation Company. Mr. Ricks, Peck is my name, sir. William E. Peck. Thank you, sir, for acceding to my request for an interview. <coughs> Cappy looked belligerent. Uh, sit down, Mr. Peck, he said. Mr. Peck sat down, but as he crossed to the chair beside Cappy's desk, the old gentleman noticed that his visitor walked with a slight limp and that his left forearm had been amputated halfway to the elbow. To the observant Cappy, the American Legion button in Mr. Peck's lapel told the story. Well, Mr. Peck, he queried gently, what can I do for you? I've called for my job, the veteran replied briefly. By the holy pink-toed prophet, Cappy ejaculated. You say that like a man who doesn't expect to be refused. Quite right, sir. I don't anticipate a refusal. And why is that? Mr. William E. Peck's engaging but somewhat plain features rippled into the most compelling smile Cappy Ricks had ever seen. I am a salesman, Mr. Ricks, he replied. I know that statement to be true because I've demonstrated over a period of five years that I can sell my share of anything that has a hawkable value. I've always found, however, that before proceeding to sell goods, I had to sell the manufacturer of those goods something, to wit, myself. I am about to sell myself to you. Son, said Cappy smilingly, you win. You've sold me already. When did they sell you a membership in the military forces of the United States of America? On the morning of April 7th, 1917, sir. Well, that clinches our sale. I soldiered with the Knights of Columbus at Camp Kearney myself, but when they refused to let me go abroad with my division, my heart was broken, so I went over the hill. 
That little touch of the language of the line appeared to warm Mr. Peck's heart considerably, establishing at once a Freemasonry between them. I was with the Portland Lumber Company, selling lumber in the Middle West before the war, he explained. Uncle Sam gave me my sheepskin at Letterman General Hospital last week, with half disability on my $10,000 worth of government insurance. Whittling my wing was a mere trifle, but my broken leg was a long time mending, and now it's shorter than it really ought to be. And I developed pneumonia with influenza, and they found some TB indications after that. I've been at the government tuberculosis hospital at Fort Bayard, New Mexico, for a year. However, what's left of me is certified to be sound. I've got five inches chest expansion, and I feel fine. Not at all blue or discouraged, Cappy hazarded. Oh, I got off easy, Mr. Ricks. I have my head left and my right arm. I can think and I can write. And even if one of my wheels is flat, I can hike longer and faster after an order than most. So, you got a job for me, Mr. Ricks? No, I haven't, Mr. Peck. I'm out of it, you know. Retired ten years ago. This office is merely a headquarters for social frivolity. A place to get my mail and mill over the gossip of the street. Our Mr. Skinner is the chap you should see. I have seen Mr. Skinner, sir, the erstwhile warrior replied. But he wasn't very sympathetic. I think he jumped to the conclusion that I was attempting to trade him my empty sleeve. He informed me that there wasn't sufficient business to keep his present staff of salesmen busy, so then I told him I'd take anything from stenographer up. I'm the champion one-handed typist of the United States Army. I can tally lumber and bill it. I can keep books and answer the telephone. No encouragement, eh? No, sir. Well now, son, Cappy informed his cheerful visitor confidentially. You take my tip and see my son-in-law, Captain Peasley. He's high, low, and jack in the game in the shipping end of our business. I've also interviewed Captain Peasley. He was very kind. He said he felt that he owed me a job, but business is so bad he couldn't make a place for me. He told me he's now carrying a dozen ex-servicemen merely because he d hasn't the heart to let them go, and I believe him. Well, my dear boy, my dear young friend, why do you come to me? Because, Mr. Peck replied smilingly, I want you to go over their heads and give me a job. I don't care a hoot what it is, provided I can do it. If I can do it, I'll do it better than it was ever done before. And if I can't do that, I'll quit to save you the embarrassment of firing me. I'm not an object of charity, but I'm scarcely the man I used to be, and I'm four years behind the procession and have to catch up. I have the best of references. I see you have, Cappy cut in blandly and pressed the push button on his desk. Mr. Skinner entered. He glanced disapprovingly at William E. Peck and then turned inquiring eyes toward Cappy Ricks. Skinner, my dear boy, Cappy purred amiably. I've been thinking over the proposition to send Andrews out to the Shanghai office, and I've come to this conclusion. We'll just have to take a chance. At the present time, that office is in charge of a stenographer, and we've got to get a manager on the job without further loss of time. So I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll send Andrews out on the next boat, but inform him that his position is temporary. Then if he doesn't make good out there, we can take him back into this office, where he's a most valuable man. Meanwhile, <coughs> meanwhile, you'd oblige me greatly, Skinner, my dear boy, if you would consent to take this young man into your office 
and give him a good workout to see the stuff he's made of. As a favor to me, Skinner, my dear boy, as a favor to me. Mr. Skinner, in the language of the sporting world, was down for the count, and he knew it. Young Mr. Peck knew it, too, and smiled graciously upon the general manager, for young Mr. Peck had been in the army, where one of the first great lessons to be assimilated is this, that the commanding general's request is always tantamount to an order. Very well, sir, Mr. Skinner replied coldly. Have you arranged the compensation to be given, Mr. Peck? Cappy threw up a deprecating hand. That detail is entirely up to you, Skinner. Far be it from me to interfere in the internal administration of your department. Naturally, you will pay Mr. Peck what he is worth and not a penny more. He turned to the triumphant Peck. Now you listen to me, young feller. If you think you're slipping gracefully into a good thing, disabuse your mind of that impression right now. You'll step right up to the plate, my son, and you'll hit the ball fairly on the nose, and you'll do it early and often. The first time you tip a foul, you'll be warned. The second time you do it, you'll get a month's layoff to think it over. And the third time, you'll be out for keeps. Do I make myself clear? You do, sir, Mr. Peck declared happily. All I ask is fighting room, and I'll hack my way into Mr. Skinner's heart. Thank you, Mr. Skinner, for consenting to take me on. I appreciate your action very much and shall endeavor to be worthy of your confidence. Young scoundrel, infernal young scoundrel, Cappy murmured to himself. He has a sense of humor, thank God. Ah, but poor old narrow-gauge Skinner. If that fellow ever gets a new or unconventional thought in his stodgy head, it'll kill him overnight. He's hopping mad right now because he can't say a word in his own defense. But if he doesn't make hell look like a summer holiday for Mr. Bill Peck, I'm due to be mercifully chloroformed. Good Lord, how empty life would be if I couldn't butt in and raise a little riot every once and so often. Young Mr. Peck had risen and was standing at attention. When do I report for duty, sir? He queried of Mr. Skinner. Whenever you're ready, Skinner retorted with a wintry smile. Mr. Peck glanced at a cheap wristwatch. It's 12 o'clock now, he said out loud. I'll pop out, wrap myself around some rations, and report on the job at 1 p.m. I might as well just knock out half a day's pay. He glanced at Cappy Ricks and quoted, Count that day lost whose low-descending sun finds prices shot to glory and business done for fun. Unable to maintain his composure in the face of such levity during office hours, Mr. Skinner withdrew, still wrapped in his sub-Antarctic dignity. As the door closed behind him, Mr. Peck's eyebrows went up in a manner indicative of apprehension. I'm off to a bad start, Mr. Ricks, he said. Well, you only asked for a start, Cappy said. I didn't guarantee you a good start, and I wouldn't because I can't. I can only drive Skinner and Matt Peasley so far, and no farther. There's always a point at which I quit, er, um, William, better known as Bill Peck, sir. Very well, Bill. Cappy slid out to the edge of his chair and peered at Bill Peck balefully over the top of his spectacles. I'll have my eye on you, young feller, he shrilled. I freely acknowledge our indebtedness to you. But the day you get the notion in your head that this office is an old soldier's home? He paused thoughtfully. 
I wonder what Skinner will pay you. Oh, well, he said. Whatever it is, take it and say nothing. And when the moment is propitious and provided you've earned it, I'll intercede with a danged old relic and get you a raise. Thank you very much, sir. You are most kind. Good day, sir. And Bill Peck picked up his hat and limped out of the presence. Scarcely had the door closed behind him than Mr. Skinner re-entered Cappy Rick's lair. He opened his mouth to speak, but Cappy silenced him with an imperious finger. Not a peep out of you, Skinner, my dear boy, he chirped amiably. I know exactly what you're going to say, and I admit you're right to say it, but... Now, Skinner, listen to reason. How the devil could you have the heart to reject that crippled ex-soldier? There he stood on one sound leg, with his sleeve tucked into his coat pocket, and on his homely face the grin of an unwhipped, unbeatable man. But you, blast your cold, unfeeling soul, Skinner, looked him in the eye and turned him down like a drunkard turns down near beer. Skinner, how could you do it? Undaunted by Cappy's admonitory finger, Mr. Skinner struck a distinctly defiant attitude. There is no sentiment in business, he replied angrily. A week ago last Thursday, the local posts of the American Legion commenced their organized drive for jobs for their crippled and unemployed comrades, and within three days you've sought off 209 such jobs on the various corporations that you control. The gang you shipped up to the mill in Washington has already applied for a charter for a new post to be known as Cappy Rick's Post Number 534, and you had experienced men discharged to make room for these ex-soldiers. You bet I did, Cappy yelled triumphantly. It's always old home week in every logging camp and sawmill in the Northwest for IWWs and revolutionary communists. I'm sick of their unauthorized strikes and sabotage. And by the holy pink-toed prophet, Cappy Rick's post number 534 American Legion is the only sort of backfire I can think of to put the wobblies on the run. Every office and ship and retail yard could be run by a first sergeant. Skinner complained. I'm thinking of having reveille and retreat and bugle calls and Saturday morning inspections. I tell you, sir, the Rick's interests have absorbed all the old soldiers possible, and at the present moment those interests are overflowing with glory. What we want are workers, not talkers. These ex-soldiers spend too much time fighting their battles over again. Well, Comrade Peck is the last one I'll ask you to absorb, Skinner, Cappy promised contritely. Ever read Kipling's Barrack Room Ballad, Skinner? I have no time to read, Mr. Skinner protested. Go uptown this minute and buy a copy and read a ballad entitled Tommy, Cappy barked, for the good of your immortal soul. Well, Comrade Peck doesn't make a hit with me, Mr. Ricks. He applied to me for a job, and I gave him his answer. Then he went to Captain Matt and was refused. So just to demonstrate his bad taste, he went over our heads and induced you to pitchfork him into a job. He'll curse the day he was inspired to do that. Skinner, look me in the eye. Do you know why I asked you to take on Bill Peck? I do. It's because you're too tender-hearted for your own good. You unimaginative dunderhead. You gibbering jackdaw. How could I reject a boy who simply would not be rejected? Why, I'll bet a ripe peach that Bill Peck was one of the doggondest, finest soldiers you ever saw. He carries his objective. 
He sized you up just like that, Skinner. He declined to permit you to block him. Skinner, that peck person has been opposed by experts. Yes, sir, experts. What kind of a job are you going to give him, Skinner, my dear boy? Andrew's job, of course. Oh, yes, I forgot. Skinner, dear boy, haven't we got about a half a million feet of skunk spruce to saw off on somebody? Mr. Skinner nodded, and Cappy continued with all the naive eagerness of one who has just made a marvelous discovery, which he is confident will revolutionize science. Give him that stinking stuff to peddle, Skinner, and if he can dig up a couple of dozen of carloads of red fur or bullpine in transit, or some short or odd-length stock, or some larch ceiling or flooring, or some hemlock random stock, in fact, anything the trade doesn't want as a gift. You get me, don't you, Skinner? Mr. Skinner smiled his swordfish smile. And if he fails to make good, au revoir, right? Yes, I suppose so, although I hate to think about it. On the other hand, if he makes good, he's to have Andrew's salary. We must be fair, Skinner. Whatever our faults, we must always be fair. He rose and patted the general manager's lean shoulder. There, there, Skinner, my boy. Forgive me if I've been a trifle uh, precipitate. And, uh, Skinner, if you put a prohibitive price on that skunk fur, by the holy pink-toed prophet, I'll fire you. Be fair, boy. Be fair. No dirty work, Skinner. Remember, Comrade Peck has half of his left forearm buried in France. Chapter 3 At 12.30, as Cappy was hurrying up California Street to luncheon at the commercial club, he met Bill Peck limping down the sidewalk. The ex-soldier stopped him and handed him a business card. What do you think of that, sir? He said. Isn't it a neat business card? Cappy read, Rick's Lumber and Logging Company, Lumber and Its Products, 248 California Street, San Francisco, represented by William E. Peck. If you can drive nails in it, we have it. Cappy Ricks ran a speculative thumb over Comrade Peck's business card. It was engraved, and copper plates or steel dies are not made in half an hour. By the twelve ragged apostles! This was Cappy's most terrible oath, and he never employed it unless rocked to his very foundations. Bill, as one bandit to another, come clean. When did you first make up your mind to go to work for us? A week ago, Comrade Peck replied blandly. And what was your grade when Kaiser Bill went AWOL? I was a buck. I don't believe you. Didn't anybody ever offer you something better? Frequently. However, if I had accepted, I would have had to resign the nicest job I ever had. There wasn't much money in it, but it was filled with excitement and interesting experiments. I used to disguise myself as a Christmas tree or a boxcar and pick off German sharpshooters. I was known as Peck's bad boy. I was often tempted to quit, but whenever I'd reflect on the number of American lives I was saving daily, a commission was just a scrap of paper to me. If you'd ever started in any other branch of the service, you'd have run John J. Pershing down to Lance Corporal. Bill, listen. Have you ever had any experience selling skunk spruce? Comrade Peck was plainly puzzled. He shook his head. What sort of stock is it? he asked. Humboldt County, California, spruce, and it's coarse and stringy and wet and heavy and smells just like a skunk directly after using. I'm afraid Skinner is going to start you at the bottom, and skunk spruce is it. 
Can you drive nails in it, Mr. Ricks? Oh, yes. Does anybody ever buy skunk spruce? Oh, occasionally one of our bright young men digs up a half-wit who's tr willing to try anything once. Otherwise, of course, we wouldn't continue to manufacture it. Fortunately, Bill, we have very little of it, but whenever our woods boss runs across a good tree, he hasn't the heart to leave it standing, and as a result, we always have enough skunk spruce on hand to keep our salesmen humble. I can sell anything at a price, Comrade Peck replied unconcernedly and continued on his way back to the office. Chapter 4 For two months, Cappy Ricks saw nothing of Bill Peck. That enterprising veteran had been sent out into the Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas territory the moment he had familiarized himself with the numerous details regarding freight rates, weights, and the mills he represented, all things which a salesman should be familiar with before he starts out on the road. From Salt Lake City, he wired an order for two carloads of larch rustic, and in Ogden, he managed to inveigle a retail yard with which Mr. Skinner had been trying to do business for years into sampling a carload of skunk spruce boards, random lengths and grades, at a dollar above the price given him by Skinner. In Arizona, he worked up some new business in mining timbers, but it was not until he got into the heart of Texas that Comrade Peck really commenced to demonstrate his selling ability. Standard oil derricks were his specialty, and he shot the orders in so fast that Mr. Skinner was forced to wire him for mercy and instruct him to devote his talent to the disposal of cedar shingles and siding, Douglas fir and redwood. Eventually, he completed his circle and worked his way home via Los Angeles, pausing, however, in the San Joaquin Valley to sell two more carloads of skunk spruce. When this order was wired in, Mr. Skinner came to Cappy with the telegram. Well, I must admit Comrade Peck can sell lumber, he said grudgingly. He has secured five new accounts, and here's an order for two more carloads of skunk spruce. I'll have to raise his salary about the first of the year. My dear Skinner, why the devil wait until the first of the year? Your pernicious habit of deferring the inevitable parting with money has cost us the services of more than one good man. You know you have to raise Comrade Peck's salary sooner or later, so why not do it now and smile like a dentifrice advertisement while you're doing it? Comrade Peck will feel a whole lot better as a result, and who knows, he may conclude you're a human being after all, and perhaps learn to love you. Very well, sir. I'll give him the same salary Andrews was getting before Peck took over his territory. Skinner, you make it impossible for me to refrain from showing you who's boss around here. He's better than Andrews, isn't he? I think he is, sir. Well then, for the love of a square deal, pay him more and pay it to him from the first day he went to work. Get out. You make me nervous. By the way, how is Andrews getting along in his Shanghai job? He's helping the cable company pay its income tax. Cable's about three times a week on matters he should decide for himself. Matt Peasley is disgusted with him. Ah, well, I'm not disappointed. And I suppose Matt will be in here before long to remind me that I was the bright boy who picked Andrews for the job. Well, I did. But I call upon you to remember, Skinner, when I'm assailed, that Andrews' appointment was temporary. Yes, sir, it was. Well, I suppose I'll have to cast about for his successor and beat Matt out of his cheap, I told you so, triumph. I think Comrade Peck has some of the earmarks of a good manager for our Shanghai office, but I'll have to test him a little further. 
He looked up humorously at Mr. Skinner. Skinner, my dear boy, he said, I'm going to have him deliver a blue vase. Mr. Skinner's cold features actually glowed. Well, tip the chief of police and the proprietor of the stores off this time and save yourself some money, he warned Cappy. He walked to the window and looked down into California Street. He continued to smile. Yes, Cappy continued dreamily. I think I shall give him the 33rd degree. You'll agree with me, Skinner, that if he delivers the blue vase, he'll be worth $10,000 a year as our oriental manager. I'll say he will, Mr. Skinner replied slangily. Very well, then. Arrange matters, Skinner, so that he'll be available for me at 1 o'clock a week from Sunday. I'll attend to the other details. Mr. Skinner nodded. He was still chuckling when he departed for his own office. Chapter 5 A week from the succeeding Saturday, Mr. Skinner did not come down to the office, but a telephone message from his home informed the chief clerk that Mr. Skinner was at home and somewhat indisposed. The chief clerk was to advise Mr. Peck that he, Mr. Skinner, had contemplated having a conference with the latter that day, but that his indisposition would prevent this. Mr. Skinner hoped to be feeling much better tomorrow, and since he was very desirous of a conference with Mr. Peck before the latter should depart on his next selling pilgrimage on Monday, would Mr. Peck be good enough to call at Mr. Skinner's house at 1 o'clock Sunday afternoon? Mr. Peck sent back word that he would be there at the appointed time and was rewarded with Mr. Skinner's thanks via the chief clerk. Promptly at 1 o'clock the following day, Bill Peck reported at the general manager's house. He found Mr. Skinner in bed, reading the paper and looking surprisingly well. He trusted Mr. Skinner felt better than he looked. Mr. Skinner did, and at once entered into a discussion of the new customers, other prospects he particularly desired Mr. Peck to approach, new business to be investigated, and further details without end. And in the midst of the conference, Cappy Ricks telephoned. A portable telephone stood on a commode beside Mr. Skinner's bed, so the latter answered immediately. Comrade Peck watched Skinner listen attentively for fully two minutes and then heard him say, Mr. Ricks, I'm terribly sorry. I'd love to do this errand for you, but really I'm under the weather. In fact, I'm in bed as I speak to you now. But Mr. Peck is here with me, and I'm sure he'll be very happy to attend to the matter for you. By all means, Bill Peck hastened to assure the general manager. Who does Mr. Ricks want killed, and where will he have the body delivered? Ha, 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 Mr. Skinner had a singularly annoying and mirthless laugh, as if he begrudged himself such an unheard-of indulgence. He informed Cappy, Mr. Peck says that he'll be delighted to attend to the matter for you. He wants to know whom you want killed and where you wish the body delivered. Ha, 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 Peck, Mr. Ricks will speak to you. Bill Peck took the telephone. Good afternoon, Mr. Ricks. Hello, old soldier. What are you doing this afternoon? Nothing, after I conclude my conference with Mr. Skinner. By the way, he's just given me a most handsome boost in salary, for which I'm most appreciative. I feel, however, despite Mr. Skinner's graciousness, that you have put in a kind word for me with him, and I want to thank you. Tut, tut. Not a peep out of you, sir. Not a peep. You get nothing for nothing from Skinner or me. However, in view of the fact that you're feeling kindly toward me this afternoon, I wish you'd do a little errand for me. 
I can't send a boy, and I hate to make a messenger out of you. Um, I have no false pride, Mr. Ricks. Thank you, Bill. I'm glad you feel that way about it. Bill, I was prowling around town this forenoon after church, and down in a store on Sutter Street, between Stockton and Powell Street, on the right-hand side as you face Market Street, I saw a blue vase in a window. I have a weakness for vases, Bill. I'm a sharp on them, too. Now, this vase I saw isn't very expensive as vases go. In fact, I wouldn't buy it for my collection. But one of the finest and sweetest ladies of my acquaintance has the mate to that blue vase I saw in the window, and I know she'd be prouder than punch if she had two of them, one for each side of her drawing room mantle. Do you understand? Now, I'm leaving for the Southern Pacific Depot at 8 o'clock tonight, bound for Santa Barbara to attend her wedding anniversary tomorrow night. I forget what anniversary it is, Bill, but I've been informed by my daughter that I'll be very much de trope if I send her any present other than something in porcelain or china or cloison. Well, Bill, this crazy little blue vase just fills the order. Do you understand? Yes, sir. You feel that it would be most graceful on your part if you could bring this little blue vase down to Santa Barbara with you tonight. You have to have it tonight, because if you wait until the store opens on Monday, the vase will reach your hostess 24 hours after her anniversary party. Exactly, Bill. Now, I've simply got to have that blue vase. If I had discovered it yesterday, I wouldn't be asking you to get it for me today. Please make no explanations or apologies, Mr. Ricks. You've described the vase. No, you haven't. What sort of blue is it? How tall is it? And what is approximately its greatest diameter? Does it set on a base or does it not? Is it a solid blue or is it figured? It's a cloison vase, Bill. A sort of old Dutch blue or Delft with some oriental funny business on it. I couldn't describe it exactly, but it has some birds and flowers on it. It's about a foot tall and four inches in diameter and sets on a teak wood base. Very well, sir. You shall have it. And you'll deliver it to me in Stateroom A, Car 7, aboard the train at 3rd and Townsend Streets at 7.55 tonight? Yes, sir. Thank you, Bill. The expense will be trifling. Collect it from the cashier in the morning and tell him to charge it to my account. And Cappy hung up. At once, Mr. Skinner took up the thread of the interrupted conference and it was not until 3 o'clock that Bill Peck left his house and proceeded downtown to locate Cappy Ricks's blue vase. He proceeded to the block in Sutter Street between Stockton and Powell Streets, and although he walked patiently up one side of the street and down the other, not a single vase of any description showed up in any shop window, nor could he find a single shop where such a vase as Cappy had described might perchance be displayed for sale. I think the old boy has erred in the coordinates of the target, Bill Peck concluded, or else I misunderstood him. I'll telephone his house and ask him to repeat them. He did, but nobody was at home except a Swedish maid, and all she knew was that Mr. Ricks was out and the hour of his return was unknown. So Mr. Peck went back to Sutter Street and scoured once more every shop window in the block. Then he scouted two blocks above Powell and two blocks below Stockton. Still, the blue vase remained invisible. So he transferred his search to a corresponding area on Bush Street, and when that failed, he went painstakingly over four blocks of Post Street. 
He was still without results when he moved one block further west and one further south and discovered the blue vase in a huge plate glass window of a shop on Geary Street near Grant Avenue. He surveyed it critically and was convinced that it was the object he sought. He tried the door, but it was locked as he anticipated it would be. So he kicked the door and raised an infernal racket, hoping against hope that the noise might bring a watchman from the rear of the building. In vain. He backed out to the edge of the sidewalk and read the sign over the door. B. Cohen's, C-O-H-E-N, Art Shop. This was a start, so Mr. Peck limped over to the Palace Hotel and procured a telephone directory. By actual count, there were 19 B. Cohen's scattered throughout the city. So before commencing to call the 19, Bill Peck borrowed the city directory from the hotel clerk and scanned it for the particular B. Cohen who owned the art shop. His search availed him nothing. B. Cohen was listed as an art dealer at the address where the blue vase reposed in the show window. That was all. I suppose he's a commuter. Mr. Peck concluded, and at once proceeded to procure directories of the adjacent cities of Berkeley, Oakland, and Alameda. They were not available, so in despair he changed a dollar into five-cent pieces, sought a telephone booth, and commenced calling up all the B. Cohens in San Francisco. Of the 19, four did not answer, three were temporarily disconnected, six replied in Yiddish, five were not the B. Cohen he sought, and one swore he was Irish and that his name was spelled Cohen and pronounced with an accent on both syllables. The B. Cohens, resident in Berkeley, Oakland, Alameda, San Rafael, Sausalito, Mill Valley, San Mateo, Redwood City, and Palo Alto were next telephoned to, and when this long and expensive task was done, ex-private Bill Peck emerged from the telephone booth ringing wet with perspiration and as irritable as a clucking hen. Once outside the hotel, he raised his haggard face to heaven and dumbly queried of the Almighty what he meant by saving him from quick death on the field of honor only to condemn him to be talked to death by B. Cohen's in civil life. It was now six o'clock. Suddenly, Peck had an inspiration. Was the name spelled Cohen, C-O-H-E-N, C-O-H-A-N, C-O-H-N, K-O-H-N, or C-O-E-N? If I have to take a Jewish census again tonight, I'll die, he told himself desperately and went back to the art shop. And lo and behold, the sign read, B. Cons, art shop, spelled C-O-H-N. I wish I knew a bootlegger's joint, poor Peck complained. I'm pretty far gone, and a little wood alcohol couldn't hurt me much now. Why, I could have sworn that name was spelled with an E. It seems to me that I noted that particularly. He went back to the hotel telephone booth and commenced calling up all the B. Cones in town. There were eight of them, and six of them were out. One was maudlin with liquor, and the other was very deaf and shouted unintelligibly. Peace had its barbarities no less than war, Mr. Peck sighed. He changed a $20 bill into nickels, dimes, and quarters, returned to the hot, ill-smelling telephone booth, and proceeded to lay down a barrage of telephone calls to the B-Cons of all towns of any importance contiguous to San Francisco Bay. And he was lucky. 
On the sixth call, he located the particular B. Cone in San Rafael, only to be informed by Mr. Cone's cook that Mr. Cone was dining at the home of a Mr. Simons in Mill Valley. There were three Mr. Simons in Mill Valley, and Peck called them all before connecting with the right one. Yes, Mr. B. Cone was there, who wished to speak to him. Mr. Heck? Oh, Mr. Lake. A silence. Then, Mr. Cone says he doesn't know any Mr. Lake and wants to know the nature of your business. He is dining and doesn't like to be disturbed unless the matter is of grave importance. Tell him Mr. Peck wishes to speak to him on a matter of very great importance, wailed the ex-private. Mr. Metz? Mr. Ben Metz? No, no, no. Peck. P-E-C-K. D-E-C-K? No, P. C? P. Oh, yes, E. E what? C-K. Oh, yes, Mr. Eckstein. Call Cone to the phone or I'll go over there on the next boat and kill you, you damned idiot. Tell him his store is on fire. That message was evidently delivered for almost immediately Mr. B. Cone was puffing and spluttering into the phone. Is Dr. Fire Marshal, he managed to articulate. Listen, Mr. Cone, Peck said, your store is not on fire, but I had to say so in order to get you to the telephone. I am Mr. Peck, a total stranger to you. You have a blue vase in your shop window on Geary Street in San Francisco. I want to buy it, and I want to buy it before 7.45 tonight. I want you to come across the bay and open the store and sell me that vase. Such a business. What you think I am? Crazy? No, Mr. Cone, I do not. I'm the only crazy man talking. I'm crazy for that vase, and I've got to have it right away. You know what that vase costs. Mr. B. Cone's voice dripped syrup. No, and I don't give a hoot what it costs. I want what I want when I want it. Now, do I get it? Well, let me see. What time is it? A silence while B. Cone evidently looked at his watch. It is now a quarter of seven, Mr. Eckstein, and your next train from v Mill Valley don't leave until eight o'clock. That will get me to San Francisco at 8.50, and I'm dining with friends and have just finished my soup. To hell with your soup! I want that blue vase! Well, I tell you, Mr. Eckstein, if you've got to have it, Call up my head salesman, Herman Joost, in Der Chilton Apartments, Prospect 3249, and tell him I said he should come down right to Vic and sell you dot blue vase. Goodbye, Mr. Eckstein. Instantly, Peck called Prospect 3249 and asked for Herman Joost. Mr. Joost's mother answered. She was desolate because Herman was not at home, but vouchsafed the information that he was dining at the country club. Which country club? She didn't know. So Peck procured from the hotel clerk a list of the country clubs in and around San Francisco and started calling them up. At 8 o'clock, he was still being informed that Mr. Juice was not a member, m that Mr. Luce was not in, that Mr. Coos had been dead three months, and that Mr. Boos had played but eight holes when he received a telegram calling him back to New York. At the other clubs, Mr. Joust was unknown. Licked, 
murmured Bill Peck, but never let it be said that I didn't go down fighting. I'm going to heave a brick through that show window, grab the vase, and run with it. He engaged a taxicab and instructed the driver to wait for him at the corner of Geary and Stockton Streets. Also, he borrowed from the chauffeur a ball-peen hammer. When he reached the art shop of B. Cone, however, a policeman was standing in the doorway, violating the general orders of a policeman on duty by surreptitiously smoking a cigar. He'll nab me if I crack that window, the desperate Peck decided, and continued on down the street, crossed to the other side, and came back. It was now dark, and over the art shop, B. Cohen's name burned in small red, white, and blue electric lights. And lo, it was spelled Cohen, C-O-H-E-N. Ex-private William E. Peck sat down on a fire hydrant and cursed with rage. His weak leg hurt him too, and for some damnable reason the stump of his left arm developed the feeling that his missing hand was itchy. The world is filled with idiots! I'm tired and I'm hungry. I skipped luncheon, and I've been too busy to think of dinner. He walked back to his taxicab and returned to the hotel, where hope, springing eternal in his breast, he called Prospect 3249 again and discovered that the missing Herman Juice had returned to the bosom of his family. To him the frantic Peck delivered the message of B. Cone, whereupon the cautious Herman Joost replied that he would confirm the authenticity of the message by telephoning to Mr. Cone at Mr. Simon's home in Mill Valley. If Mr. B. Cone, or Cohen, confirmed Mr. Keck's story, he, the said Herman Joost, would be at the store sometime before 9 o'clock, and if Mr. Keck cared to, he might await him there. Mr. Keck said that he would be delighted to wait for him there. At 9.15, Herman Joost appeared on the scene. On his way down the street, he had taken the precaution to pick up a policeman and bring him along with him. The lights were switched on in the store, and Mr. Joost lovingly abstracted the blue vase from the window. What's the cursed thing worth? Peck demanded. Two thousand dollars. Mr. Joost replied, without so much as the quiver of an eyelash. Cash, he added, apparently as an afterthought. The exhausted Peck leaned against the sturdy guardian of the law and sighed. This was the final straw. He had about ten dollars in his possession. You refuse absolutely to accept my check, he quavered. I don't know you, Mr. Peck. Herman Joost replied simply. Where's your telephone? Mr. Joost led Peck to the telephone, and the latter called up Mr. Skinner. Mr. Skinner, he announced, this is all that is mortal of Bill Peck speaking. I've got the store open, and for $2,000, cash, I can buy the blue vase Mr. Ricks has set his heart upon. Oh, Peck, dear fellow, Mr. Skinner purred sympathetically. Have you been all this time on that errand? I have, and I'm going to stick on the job until I deliver the goods. For God's sake, let me have $2,000 and bring it down to me at B. Cohen's art shop on Geary Street near Grant Avenue. I'm too utterly exhausted to go up after it. My dear Mr. Peck, I haven't $2,000 in my house. 
That is too great a sum of money to keep on hand. Well, then, come downtown. Open up the office safe and get the money for me. Time lock on the office safe, Peck. Impossible. Well, then, come down and identify me at hotels and cafes and restaurants so I can cash my own check. Is your check good, Mr. Peck? The flood of invective, which had been accumulating in Mr. Peck's system all the afternoon, now broke its bounds. He screamed at Mr. Skinner a blasphemous invitation to betake himself to the lower regions. Tomorrow morning, he promised hoarsely, I'll beat you to death with the stump of my left arm, you miserable, cold-blooded, lazy, shiftless slacker. He called up the Cappy Ricks residence next and asked for Captain Matt Peasley, who he knew made his home with his father-in-law. Matt Peasley came to the telephone and listened sympathetically to Peck's tale of woe. Peck, that is the worst outrage I've ever heard, he declared, the idea of setting you on such a task. You take my advice and forget the blue vase. I can't, Peck panted. Mr. Ricks will feel mightily chagrined if I fail to get to the vase to him. I wouldn't disappoint him for my right arm. He's been a dead game sport with me, Captain Peasley. But it's too late to get the vase to him, Peck. He left the city at eight o'clock, and now it's almost half past nine. I know, but if I can secure legal possession of the vase, I'll get it to him before he leaves the train at Santa Barbara at six o'clock tomorrow morning. How's that? There's a flying school out at the marina and one of the f pilots there is a friend of mine. He'll fly to Santa Barbara with me and the vase. You're crazy. I know it. Please lend me $2,000. What for? To pay for the vase. Now I know you're crazy. Or drunk. Why, if Cappy Ricks ever forgot himself to the extent of paying $200 for a vase, he'd bleed to death in an hour. Won't you let me have $2,000, Captain Peasley? I will not, Peck, old son. Go home and to bed and forget it. Please, you can cash your checks. You're known so much better than I, and it's Sunday night, and it's a fine way to keep holy the Sabbath, Matt Peasley retorted and hung up. Well, Herman Juiced queried, do we stay here all night? Bill Peck bowed his head. Look here, he said suddenly. Do you know a good diamond when you see it? I do. Herman Juiced replied. Will you wait here until I go to my hotel and get one? Certainly. Bill Peck limped painfully away. Forty minutes later, he returned with a platinum ring set with diamonds and sapphires. What are they worth, he demanded. Herman Juiced looked the ring over lovingly and appraised it conservatively at $2,500. Take it as security for the payment of my check, Peck pleaded. Give me a receipt for it, and after my check has gone through clearing, I'll come back and get the ring. Fifteen minutes later, with the blue vase packed in excelsior and reposing in a stout court cardboard box, Bill Peck entered a restaurant and ordered dinner. When he had dined, he engaged a taxi and was driven to the flying field at the marina. From the night watchman, he ascertained the address of his pilot friend, and at midnight, with his friend at the wheel, Bill Peck and his blue vase soared up into the moonlight and headed south. An hour and a half later, they landed in a stubble field in the Salinas Valley, and bidding his friend goodbye, 
Bill Peck trudged across to the railroad track and sat down. When the train bearing Cappy Ricks came roaring down the valley, Peck twisted a Sunday paper with which he had provided himself into an improvised torch, which he lighted. Standing between the rails, he swung the flaming paper frantically. The train slid to a halt. A brakeman opened a vestibule door, and Bill Peck stepped wearily aboard. "'What do you mean by flagging this train?' the brakeman demanded angrily, as he signaled to the engineer to proceed. "'You got a ticket?' "'No, but I've got the money to pay my way, and I flagged this train because I wanted to change my method of travel. I'm looking for a man in stateroom A of car 7, and if you try to block me, there'll be murder done.' "'That's right. Take advantage of your half-portion arm and abuse me,' the brakeman retorted bitterly. "'Are you looking for that old man with the Henry Clay collar and the white mutton-chop whiskers?' "'I certainly am.' "'Well, he was looking for you just before we left San Francisco. "'He asked me if I had seen a one-armed man with a box under his good arm. "'I'll lead you to him.' "'A prolonged ringing at Cappy's stateroom door brought the old gentleman to the entrance in his nightshirt.' "'Very sorry to have to disturb you, Mr. Ricks,' said Bill Peck. "'But the fact is there were so many Cohens and Cones and Cohans, "'and it was such a job to dig up $2,000 "'that I failed to connect with you at 7.45 last night, as per orders. "'It was absolutely impossible for me to accomplish the task "'within the time limits set. "'But I was resolved that you should not be disappointed. "'Here is the vase. "'The shop wasn't within four blocks of where you thought it was, sir.' but I'm sure I found the right vase. It ought to be. It cost enough and was hard enough to get, so it should be precious enough to form a gift for any friend of yours. Cappy Ricks stared at Bill Peck as if the latter were a wraith or a ghost. By the twelve ragged apostles, he murmured. By the holy pink-toed prophet, we changed the sign on you, and we stacked the Cohens on you, and we set a policeman to guard the shop to keep you from breaking the window, and we made you dig up $2,000 on Sunday night in a town where you're practically unknown, and while you miss the train at 8 o'clock, you overtake it at 2 o'clock in the morning and deliver the blue vase. Come in and rest your poor old game leg, Bill. Brakeman, I'm much obliged to you. Bill Peck entered and slumped wearily down on the settee. So it was a plant, he cracked, and his voice trembled with rage. Well, sir, you're an old man, and you've been good to me, so I don't begrudge you your little joke. But, Mr. Ricks, I can't stand things like I used to. My leg hurts, and my stump hurts, and my heart hurts. He paused, choking, and the tears of impotent rage filled his eyes. You shouldn't treat me that way, sir. I've been trained not to question orders, even when they seem utterly foolish to me. I've been trained to obey them, on time if possible, but if impossible to obey them anyhow. I've been taught loyalty to my chief, and I'm sorry my chief found it necessary to make a buffoon of me. I haven't had a very good time the past three years, and you can pass your skunk screws and your larch rustic and short odd length scot to some slacker like Skinner and you'd better arrange to replace Skinner because he's young enough to take a beating and I'm going to give it to him it'll be a hospital job sir Cappy Ricks ruffled Bill Peck's aching head with a paternal hand 
Bill, old boy, it was cruel, damnably cruel. But I had a big job for you, and I had to find out a lot of things before you before I entrusted you with that job. So I arranged to give you the degree of the blue vase, which is the supreme test of a go-getter. You thought you carried into the stateroom a $2,000 vase, but between ourselves, what you really carried in was a $10,000 job as our Shanghai manager. What? What? Peck said. Every time I have to pick out a permanent holder of a job worth $10,000 or more, I give the candidate the degree of the blue vase, Cappy said. I've had two men out of a field of 15 deliver the vase, Bill. Bill Peck had forgotten his rage, but the tears of his recent fury still glistened in his bold blue eyes. Thank you, sir. I forgive you, and I'll make good in Shanghai. I know you will, Bill. Now, tell me, son, weren't you tempted to quit when you discovered the almost insuperable obstacles I'd placed in your way? Yes, sir, I was. I wanted to commit suicide before I'd finished telephoning all the C-O-H-E-Ns in the world. And when I started on the C-O-H-Ns, well, it's this way, sir. I just couldn't quit because that would have been disloyal to a man I once knew. Who was he? Cappy demanded. There was awe in his voice. He was my brigadier, and he had a brigade motto, It shall be done. When the divisional commander called him up and told him to move forward with his brigade and occupy certain territory, our brigadier would say, Very well, sir, it shall be done. If any officer in his brigade showed signs of flunking his job because it appeared impossible, the brigadier would just look at him once, and then that officer would remember the motto and go and do his job or die trying. In the army, sir, the esprit de corps doesn't bubble up from the bottom. It filters down from the top. An organization is what its commanding officer is, neither better nor worse. In my company, when the top sergeant handed out a week of kitchen police to a buck, the buck was out of luck if he couldn't muster a grin and say, All right, sergeant, it shall be done. The brigadier sent for me once and ordered me to go out and get a certain German sniper. I had been pretty lucky. Some days I got enough for a mess, and he'd heard of me. He opened a map and said to me, Here's about where he holds up. Go get him, Private Peck. Well, Mr. Ricks, I snapped into it and gave him a rifle salute and said, Sir, it shall be done. And I'll never forget the look that man gave me. He came down to the field hospital to see me after I'd walked into one of those Austrian 88s. I knew my left wing was a total loss, and I suspected my left leg was about to leave me, and I was downhearted and wanted to die. He came and bucked me up. He said, Why, Private Peck, you aren't half dead. In civil life, you're going to be worth half a dozen live loans, aren't you? But I was pretty far gone, and I told him I didn't believe it. So he gave me a hard look and said, Private Peck will do his utmost to recover, and as a starter, he will smile. Of course, putting it in the form of an order, I had to give him the usual reply. So I grinned and said, Sir, it shall be done. He was quite a man, sir, and his brigade had a soul, his soul. I see, Bill, said Cappy, and his soul goes marching on, huh? Who was he? Bill Peck named his idol. By the twelve ragged apostles, 
There was awe in Cappy Rick's voice. There was reverence in his faded old eyes. Son, he continued gently, Twenty-five years ago, your brigadier was a candidate for an important job in my employ, and I gave him the degree of the blue vase. He couldn't get the vase legitimately, so he threw a cobblestone through the window, grabbed the vase, and ran a mile and a half before the police captured him. It cost me a lot of money to square the case and keep it quiet. But he was too good, Bill, and I couldn't stand in his way. I let him go forward to his destiny. But tell me, Bill... How did you get the $2,000 to pay for the vase? Once, said ex-Private Peck, thoughtfully, the brigadier and I were first at a dugout entrance. It was a headquarters dugout, and they wouldn't surrender. So I bombed them, and then we went down. I found a finger with a ring on it, and the brigadier said if I didn't take the ring, somebody else would. I left that ring as security for my check. But how could you have the courage to let me in for a $2,000 vase? Didn't you realize that the price was absurd and that I might repudiate the transaction? Certainly not, said Peck. You are responsible for the acts of your servant. You are a true blue sport and would never repudiate my action. You told me what to do, but you did not insult my intelligence by telling me how to do it. When my late brigadier sent me after that German sniper, he didn't take into consideration the probability that the sniper might get me. He told me to get the sniper. It was my business to see to it that I accomplished my mission and carried my objective, which, of course, I could not have done if I had permitted the German to get me. I see, Bill. Well, give that blue vase to the porter in the morning. I paid 15 cents for it in a 5, 10, and 15 cents store. Meanwhile, hop into that upper berth and get yourself some well-earned rest. But aren't you going to a wedding anniversary at Santa Barbara, Mr. Ricks? I am not. Bill, I discovered a long time ago that it's a good idea for me to get out of town and play golf as often as I can. Besides which, prudence dictates that I remain away from the office for a week after the seeker of the blue vase fails to deliver the goods. And, by the way, Bill, what sort of game do you play? Oh, forgive me, Bill. I forgot about your left arm. Say, look here, sir, Bill Peck retorted. I'm big enough and ugly enough to play one-handed golf. But have you ever tried it? said Cappy Ricks. No, sir, Bill Peck replied seriously, but it shall be done.